welcome to Diabretic, the podcast where a T1D expert and T1D artist come together and bake bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human in health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, a PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. And I'm Melissa Horrocks. I am type 1 diabetic. I'm an artist, baker, and creator of all things. And this is season one, episode two. We're talking cardamom bread and diabetes identity with a special guest, our very first guest, which is Dr. Heather R. Walker from the University of Utah. All right, so our bread for today is cardamom bread. Technically (laughs) Swedish cardamom bread is what the recipe says. Interesting. But uh, it's from a blog site and so i don't know how swedish it is <laughs> it's sweet <laughs> it was swedish. delicious it was very very good um the choice for bread today was actually directly connected with our guest because this was a current favorite of our guest for today dr heather r walker and she suggested uh this loaf so we baked it up and uh, the the fun thing about this is that I have never, I don't think, had cardamom in. Yeah, anything. I don't think. I mean, I don't think I have either. It was interesting tasting it because we were both like, "Have we had this flavor before? This is new." And with each slice, it became even better. I don't know. It was yeah, the, really good. The flavor uh, is hard to describe because <laughs> it's a unique like flavor. And I don't know, I feel like I've had it before and I don't know where, but I've certainly never had it in bread like this before. Yeah. And one of the nice things about this too, is that it is an enriched bread. So we're talking sugar and eggs and fat and milk as the main (laughs) source of hydration in here. Yeah. So it's super soft. Light and fluffy. Oh, Uh, that's my kind of bread. Seriously. (laughs) Um, and traditionally braided so we did of course steve says we um <laughs> let's let's uh <laughs> come out and just say it steve made the bread um <laughs> while i slept <laughs> uh, well, uh, well so <laughs> i did have one contribution yes i egg washed it and it was a beautiful egg wash so is you it, know it, absolutely and listen the egg wash is really important okay <laughs> it gives it the you don't sheen. have to pretend like i helped you get the browning <laughs> on there it's amazing but at least we're one for two in the baking together because the first one didn't like bake because that was a starter but um but this was a, a delicious recipe um, one thing that I will say, and we'll put a link to this recipe in the show notes, but one thing that I will say about this recipe and what, something that's pretty common when you run into bread recipes on blog sites in particular, and really most recipes, but uh, this is especially true of bread recipes that you find in random places around the internet. The time frames that people usually give on these things are kind of way off a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. They I mean, undershoot their timings. Like, and I don't know how much of it is they're like actually making bread that's often underproofed. And maybe, so it's just yeah. kind of usual or how much of it is the desire to make something that's quick and easy and yeah. all of that kind of thing. 
And so well, you're kind of scaling also, back. Yeah, there's also so many factors that go into bread making, you know, what temperature, yeah. your spaces, and... Elevation. I mean, there's just a lot of different factors that go into it. So. Yeah, because then that affects the hydration of your dough, uh, the your barometric pressure changes how all of the stuff functions. <laughs> but, you know, when... When a recipe says that there's a half hour second rise and you have very active yeast happening in there and it still takes at least twice that long and was still a little underproofed, we run into that area of like, yeah, I think we undershot the estimates here. So <laughs> a fair warning, uh, or maybe this is a good opportunity for a generalized bread tip, <laughs> right? So important tip here. When you are gauging whether or not your bread is ready to bake, check the bread itself rather than sticking to a very specific timeline because all those factors (laughs) can change any day. This is hard for me. Uh, I like to stick to recipes. I'm not one to experiment. But for Steve, you know, and for people who really know about bread, it's you can tell by looking at it you can tell by these factors and that's kind of things that you learn over time as you make bread um or make anything really obviously you learn over time from mistakes so you know if it doesn't and that's i think we talked about this when we were eating it it's like okay it's not this like instagram perfect loaf right but it tasted amazing and that's what's great about bread you can kind of mess it up a little bit and it still tasted good. So absolutely, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, and we have some photos up on the Instagram and the Facebook page. Um, and you can see on the top the way that it is kind of pulling and stretching and even tearing a little bit along where the braids come together. That is a sign that it was a little underproofed and I should have left it a little longer. But the the most useful test for whether something is proofed is what uh, some refer to as the poke test or the finger poke test. The idea is if you, with the tip of one of your fingers, poke your dough, ideally not too hard because you (laughs) poke that thing too hard, you're going to punch your finger right through it. (laughs) Melissa literally just had chills. I did. (laughs) Sorry for the visual. But, uh... Give it a little poke and see what it does. If where you poked it, it very slowly comes back to where it was and almost goes back to its full position, that's pretty much right on. That's what you're looking for. If you poke it and it springs right back, then it still needs time to rise. And if you poke it and it doesn't move at all, then it's overproofed. (laughs) <laughs> which it'll still bake, it'll still taste delicious, it'll just be a little flat, and uh, you just know for next time, right? So, and this, uh, I can also say, you know, the main thing that I got out of this loaf, and we've made similar types of bread, even though not with cardamom, and we have, you know, shaped loaves kind of like this before. We've done various braiding or whatever kind of, styles and things but the biggest thing here is that when we cut this thing and we ate it we loved it and you know we have two little kids in the house and they ate it and they loved it and so it's a win yep and a conversation <laughs> so so big thank you to 
Dr. Walker for talking about this bread in our conversation and go to our show notes. You can find the link to this one and bake it if you want. Let us know if you make it. We were talking about making rolls with the recipe Mm. for Thanksgiving, maybe. So, yeah. (laughs) So if we do watch out on the Instagram there, too. (laughs) Dr. Heather R. Walker is a social scientist at the University of Utah Health and uh, an instructor in the School of Cultural and Social Transformation there. She has published extensively the last couple of years on a range of topics related to diabetes and technology, um, especially a lot of things uh, related to the diabetes online community, but also a lot of conversation about identity. And that is a lot of where our conversation is going to move today. So Heather, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here talking to you. Likewise. uh, It's nice to have a chance to talk with you. Uh, Semi-virtually face-to-face, we (laughs) we have uh, communicated uh, somewhat extensively over the last year or two, but via writing. So this is really nice, and it's a a pleasure to have you. Um, uh, So with this being diabetic, I wanted to open up with a broad question related to, uh, so what's your relationship with bread, and what's your relationship with diabetes? Okay. I'm going to take the latter question first. So I have diabetes. Yeah, I have diabetes and I have had it since 2001, since I was 11. Um, And I use an insulin pump and a CGM um, to monitor it. Now that I have some private insurance here in the United States, it's kind of a prereq for that. My relationship to bread, complicated and healthy, I think. Uh, I have called myself a carbitarian. Nice. Um, for a long time, like <laughs> cheese and bread, those are my staples. And I also bake bread at home a lot. You do? Um, I do, yeah. My favorite bread is this um, like cinnamon cardamom Swedish bread. Uh, it's so good. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, it's fun. You know, I, I geek out really hard when it comes to uh, bread making. I mm-hmm. it's It's been a kind of passion, side passion that uh, has actually, frankly, it's done a lot of good for me. It's a, mm-hmm. uh, it's really cathartic. There's a lot of kind of mental health uh, related stuff that it's done for me along with, it's just freaking delicious. It's so good. <sighs> yeah. I started making bread with a bread maker, oh, which yeah. another diabetic bought for me for my wedding. Really? Um, like, yeah, as a wedding gift was this bread maker. And I started and I was like, this is so easy, you know, and I started doing it by hand. I was like, this is really hard, (laughs) but so rewarding. You get this beautiful, like it just fills your house with the best smells too. And, and yeah, it tastes so good. I love bread. Uh, I, the taste is one thing. The smell is one thing. The aesthetics is a whole other thing. I, you know, Mm -hmm. they're, the way that the bread kind of poofs and rises and you get these cracks and all this, uh, it just is, yeah. Uh, like I said, I geek out pretty hard, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay, I have to ask you one question about bread. Sure. So I imagine if, if you enjoy making bread, you also watch The Great British Bake Off. Yes. So when I you're do. baking your bread and watching it rise, do you imitate Paul Hollywood? <laughs> Talk about how it's a good bake. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yes, I, frankly, I, I do do that sometimes. And, uh, I actually, I tend to, uh, 
channel Mary Berry, I think, more than I channel nice. Paul Hollywood. I love that. <laughs> so, which is funny because I know Paul Hollywood is like the bread guy, right? And so, right, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't really identify with like him and personality and all that kind of yeah, thing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Mary Berry, on the other hand, and Prue, oh, and uh, Prue. And make everything boozy and she's all good. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have yet to incorporate booze into a bread, but maybe someday. Yeah. So, uh, the, as far as I have gone is just beer. So, beer bread is like a pretty common, oh, yeah. uh, ingredient and because uh, you've got kind of active yeasts in there as yeah. well so you get yeah. some really complex flavors and things but yeah i haven't uh haven't delved into all of that i think it works better in other baking contexts but mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah so um okay so the you mentioned uh on the one hand right that you uh have been living with type one since 2001 is that right mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and you've also then introduced the way that you have been treating um, diabetes and the yep. devices that you use in yep. everyday practices related to, um, well, eating. So hence the conversation with bread. So that's yep. helpful, but mm-hmm. um, a range of other contexts as well. And so I wanted to start, if we could, uh, by asking you a little bit about your diagnosis. Um, could you, could you talk a little bit about the context of that moment? Kind of, uh, what that, how old you were, what that moment was like, um, how you understood it then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is very differently than how I understand it now. So that's a great opening question. Yeah. So I had a bit of a rough diagnosis as I think many people with diabetes do. Um, I was 11 And I had gone, I, you know, I had the typical symptoms. I had a extreme weight loss. I was five foot two and 68 pounds by the Mm. time I was diagnosed, like, you know, scary, scary weight loss. And, um, and I'm, my doctors took a very long time to figure it out because I was sort of prepubescent and losing weight and, irritable. And my doctors just said, she has an eating disorder that she's hiding from you to my parents. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. And they diagnosed me with that, even though I did not, I didn't have that. And I kept telling them I'm eating, I'm eating everything. I'm drinking juice. Like I'm consuming so much more than I usually do. This doesn't make sense. And, you know, being 11, I just didn't have the tools to really articulate and fight for that. And so my diagnosis was really stretched out. Hmm. Um, and the reason I got diagnosed was because my doctor was out of town. So his PA came, John, love John. And he looked at, I, we came in again. Cause I was like, you know, my dad's been basically force feeding me donuts every day to try and get calories in my system. It's still not working. And he's like, Oh, you probably have diabetes, right? Like it for, for him, it just clicked when for my other right. doctor who was so convinced it was something else didn't even open, open his eyes to look for that. Um, but you know, there's a couple of moments I remember with my diagnosis outside of the background story. One, we had gotten blood work done. They, they did a blood draw instead of just a finger poke, which is still a mystery to me, but they did a blood draw. And I remember being in my room when the phone rang and I came out 
And I saw my mom on the phone, like weeping and her sister there comforting her. And I just knew it was about me and it was bad, right? Like I knew that that was the doctor and I knew it was bad, but I don't remember my parents ever telling me that that was what it was. I just remember that moment with my mom. Yeah. And then the second thing that really sticks out to me was being in the hospital because I had to be hospitalized for a few days. And I remember my, the, the, you know, the attending, the physician there, I didn't know that that was what it was called at the time, but right. I do now. So I'll use that language, <laughs> yeah. right? My doctor at the time, um, it was a woman actually. And she told me that I can expect to live a normal life until the age of 35. And in my mind, and I wrote about, I've written about this in a paper recently. In my mind, that meant you're going to live until you're 35. Not what I think it means now, which is you have a high chance of living without complications until you're 35. Oh, okay. Right. But to an 11 year old, like that's very, that's very different. And so, and I share that story because I think it characterizes the way that I started moving in my life with diabetes, with this like idea that I would have a short life with this idea of my mortality being closer um, and, and yeah. And like, you know, I just figured my end was nearer than mm. my friends. Yeah. So those are like, that was a long explanation, but I feel like those three things, um, really color the way that I started off my life and perspectives of what it was like to live with diabetes. So you mentioned you're like seeing your mom's reaction to the phone call, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the the dynamics of family in the context of diagnosis is really complicated, right? So complicated, um, yeah. So what was that like as a young person? Uh, you use the language prepubescent, right? But the, the like situates you in this space that's already emotionally complicated, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then including this family dynamic related to diagnosis there, right? So what was that, what was that like in that first stretch there? Because I know you mentioned that what this all means to you now is very different. How you understand it now is very different than it was then. Mm -hmm. Um, So what did that kind of family dynamic there do then? Then, yeah. yeah. I mean, we had a lot of trouble we as a family unit had a lot of trouble, I think more after the diagnosis than right during it. Um, because I had a very hard time adjusting to what life would be like and, and to what it was and how, you know, and I didn't want it and I didn't understand it. And I don't think my parents did either, but we are a family and this speaks to our dynamic generally, not even just related to diabetes, but right. we're kind of a family of stuffers. So, we don't have, <laughs> we don't, we don't have like, you know, loud conversations. Sure. We stuff our emotions. We wait for 24 hours and then we have like diplomatic conversations. It's weird, but that's how it's always been like, even at that time. And so yeah. when I threw, when, when diabetes came into the mix, it really disrupted that dynamic 
because I would have episodes of hyperglycemia, so high blood sugar, and I couldn't stuff. It's it's like chemically impossible to go through that process if your blood sugar is high. Yeah. And so it really disrupted the family dynamic. And I I have a lot of guilt around that, that I still process with Mm -hmm. therapists today. And I think, you know, a lot like a, a place where that guilt stems from is like knowing that what I have and how my life is brings pain to my family right from that yeah. initial moment. You know, like that's a big burden. Certainly. And yeah, and I think it's I think that's still true. I think my mom you know, she's learned to, <laughs> to not really ask about diabetes or to ask about it in a really general way because it hurts her. Not not that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do or you know that I'm mismanaging. I don't even think that's a a, a reality. Like that's not even a possibility, but and not for me for anybody. Right. But I think it's painful for her to have a reminder that I have this very difficult aspect of my life that that causes me pain and 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 suffering to some degree. Yeah, and I as a parent myself I un- understand that, right? Yeah. That's uh cuz that's a man, I every every big or little thing in relation to, to my kids, right? It's, uh, I feel it a lot, Yeah, you know, and, and, and you so, feel it in your body, right? Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, the, it's just, it's, it's really intense and complicated the ways that uh, the way that we process moments of emotional difficulty that are layered with, physical and physiological difficulty too. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. uh, you throw that into a family mix where people are there all the time and you're with them constantly and there's, yeah, it gets really complicated. So it gets, yeah, it's so complicated. I think on the other side of that, you know, being an adult now having a life, I have two kids. I've been through two pregnancies. I'm like by all accounts, like a fairly successful person. I still think that me ha- the fact that I have diabetes brings pain to them. Like, mm. you know, it's like a, there's this word. And so I'm from disability studies, right? And there's this word yeah. in disability studies that we really problematize. And it's the word despite, right? That you can have a good life despite diabetes because a, a disease, a uh, disability is seen as like, purely a taxing thing. Right. You know, by, by, by the public and and by outsiders. And some of the work that I do tries to intervene on that. And certainly a lot of work in disability studies tries to intervene on that. Right. Um, But I think it's the hardest for family members who are so close to people who have diseases like diabetes. And I, you know, I, I, by the way, use the word disease very deliberately. There's some debate in disability studies about whether or not to use that word. Um, and I use it deliberately. So I just wanted to to mention that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, uh, that may not be exactly the moment to like work through some of the, the semantic differences in this language, but it is important to point out that using a term like disease is doing different work than 
using something like an illness, right? Yeah. So illness and disease are two mm -hmm. different things that operate differently. Disability mm -hmm. is in that conversation as well. And, yeah. you know, I have come across a lot of folks in various kind of pockets of diabetes communities online and otherwise who uh, identify with that term and a lot of the work it can do. Yeah. Right. And I also know and have interacted with a lot of people who are very resistant to using that language yeah. to yeah. define diabetes and their experience as well. Mm -hmm. um, and largely I find that some of that is rooted in assumptions of able-bodiedness and like the norm, yeah. right? That it's, yeah. again, like you said, this disability is fixedly marked negative, right? Oh, Socially yeah. negative. Mm -hmm. And that there, that then paints over all experiences of goodness and joy and th that's rooted in embodied living right and yeah. um and so people don't want that kind of veil placed over their own understanding of their experience right yeah yes and and i think in my life with diabetes i've shifted what language works for me at what times in my life right i haven't always identified i haven't i'd say the majority of my life with diabetes i called it a condition Right. Because I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't want it to look like an illness. I didn't want it to look like um, a disease because I was wanting to distance myself from the negative association of ill health, right? Because in our society, we moralize health. And so yeah. I thought, I, you know, and, and I think this, a lot of this operates subconsciously. But I think I thought that if I said that I was a sick person, that meant I was a bad person. Oh, uh. Right. And right. I think that that, and I, I talk about that in one of my diabetes identity papers as a really common theme in diabetes communities. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the theme, my little clever, <laughs> if I can call myself clever, um, title for that is tales of the unsick, like mm. diabetic people spend a lot of time online talking yeah. about how they're not sick people. Right. Like I'm diabetic, but I'm not sick. Yeah. And so as a researcher who looks at the social conditions of diabetes, I have to ask, why is that a primary narrative? Like, why does that keep our community going? And how is it operating? Like, what is it actually doing in society? Um, it's sort of feeding into that same idea that health should be moralized. Right. Yeah. The health should be moralized and that it's connected to, in some form or another, it's connected to people's choices. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> that so radically misrepresents health, illness, disease, conditions, yeah. right? All of these uh, yeah. disorders. There's a lot of language that's used and thrown around in this context that uh, that, that kind of get charged in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you mentioned that... Um, you know, you have shifted the way that you understand a lot of these concepts and also foundationally you have over time, uh, shifted in your understanding of diabetes itself. Yeah. Um, and then 
how diabetes is framed in the big picture culturally, uh-huh. right? And um, you 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 referenced some some of your recent writings, and um, you were kind enough to send your uh, chapter in your upcoming book. And I want to mention this at this point because uh, you are the co-editor of a forthcoming uh, compilation of really important work. Um, so before I jump into that question, did you want to introduce or talk about the book a little bit? And then we can jump into a little bit of what you're doing there. Oh, yeah, I would love to talk about the book. Um, so the book is, the subtitle is, uh, or sorry, the main title is Undoing Diabetes. And it is a beautiful uh, collection of essays that my co-editor, Bianca C. Frazier, and I, um, oh man, I mean, we like, we conceptualized this book three years ago. We knew we wanted to do this because there's nothing like it out there. There's a book here and there that intervenes on the way society sees diabetic people and the way diabetic people see themselves. But um, there is nothing that brings together that scholarship. And so what this book does, Undoing Diabetes, is brings together scholars who are looking at diabetes as a social condition um, and the social conditions of diabetes and how it operates in society and really breaking it down and poking holes. And I, I you know, I don't want to speak for Bianca, but I, I could not be more proud of what we did. We, we solicited... And, you know, you're one of the authors, so you know very intimately how this has gone. Um, But we started with a call for proposals and we got 50 proposals, which blew my mind, right? That there are 50 people who want to write about about diabetes in this way. Um, When we really thought, like, we'd get crickets. We thought we'd have to take everybody who, who submitted. Right. And so that, that speaks to something also. Um, The book is, as we would describe it, an intervention into the way society sees diabetic people in the state of diabetes. We're hoping that it will get taken up by medical professionals as well, because a lot of the issue stems from there. That's yet to be seen. It's going to be published next month. Um, which is very exciting. Yeah, oh my gosh, it's been a long road. We're waiting. We just got an email today. Um, you know, the proofs are almost ready, the front and back matter, and we just can't wait to see it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know those listening can't see. I just have like a giant smile on my face because I'm <laughs> yeah. so excited. Yes. And I do too because I am so excited as well. You know, I've been working in this area for some time now as mm-hmm. well. And it has been really difficult finding folks who are in this conversation as well. And so anytime it happens, it is the most exciting little like moment of connection. And yeah. Uh, you know, somebody's doing this work. And one of the things that I find especially remarkable about this forthcoming book is the range of folks doing all kinds of different work in different spaces mm-hmm. who are entering this conversation from that position and perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't seen that kind of uh, collection of work 
in a, a long time. And frankly, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see it very often at all in any yeah. area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so a part of that, a part of what makes the collection so wonderful is we also have uh, community members who have written pieces for this. So I would call them like activist scholars because their work is on that level. But it was so like that was from the very beginning when Bianca and I were um, considering what we wanted represented in this book, community members were front and center um, because there's a separation, as you know, between the ivory tower and the activists and the advocates on the ground doing the work. And we wanted to make sure that we could connect those two things. But you're right. I mean, the range is so incredible. We have people talking about representation in like every movie you can imagine with diabetes. Um, Like Panic Room, we have a chapter on Panic Room. We have a chapter that talks about steel magnolias. Of course. And then, yeah, right. You're like, you can't, (laughs) you can't have a diabetes book without a critique of that. Yes. And then we have a playwright, for example, who has a play about um, his diagnosis experience that he was actually um, slated to to write before he was diagnosed. And so he was going to write a play about diabetes, and then he was diagnosed when he was writing it. Um, and that is so, wild. I know, I know. Wow. <laughs> and... Um, Yes. And so, and, and there are just so many wonderful pieces. We have a lot um, looking at television. And so I feel like, I feel like the book just captures so many sides of what a community member or a scholar would be interested in looking at. Like there's dense theory. Right. And then, and then there's, there's more poetic pieces that take you on a journey of what it's like to have a low blood sugar and not have something near you. Right. Um, yeah, it's just really powerful, and I'm excited for you to get your copy and to be able to read through everything and for it to be available because I, I just, yeah, I really believe in it. I think it's fantastic. And I do too, and I haven't had a chance to read all of the chapters, but I have <laughs> seen everyone who's there. I have yeah. Yeah, I've seen the chapter list and the titles and these abstracts, and it, it's, it's very exciting. Um, and... Uh, you in your chapter in the in the book here, mm-hmm. uh, right through this kind of eth- auto ethnographic reading of yourself through your past <laughs> online activity and the way that you're talking about diabetes, um, and there's there's a lot there about stereotyping. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the one hand, you're kind of calling out and critiquing the large scale cultural idea of what diabetes identity is. And then also trying to get at this conversation of identity in diabetes at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you walk through that as you're tracing your change in how you understand <laughs> stere- the stereotypes and mm-hmm. stigmas associated with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Would you mind speaking a little bit to kind of how did you come to this autoethnographic piece? Yeah. And how did, what was it like seeing the change in yourself over mm-hmm. time like that? That's something that we don't always have a chance, like have the material to see that for ourselves. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So this is just, 
a whole can of worms that I'm so excited to get into. I'd like to preface, you know, I, when I was in the fourth grade, so this is pre-diabetes, decided Mm -hmm. I was going to be a writer. Like I was writing poetry and memorizing it in the fourth grade, right? It wasn't good poetry, but it was a fourth grader's poetry. Hey, that's good poetry. (laughs) (laughs) It's phenomenal. It's mostly about rocks. Um, But so because that was the media, like that was the outlet in my life from before I was diabetic that moved me. I have all of these, like I have all this material to go back and look at that captures where my thinking was at the time. And I have, when I was 12, I wrote my first ever diabetes story and I still have it. Right. And that was a part of what started me on this process of sort of looking inward and doing an autonetnographic piece for this book. Wow. Yeah. Cause I, I really, I have so much material. It's mind boggling. Um, and on top of that, when I was leaving college, I started a diabetes blog that was basically like a journal about my life with diabetes. It was called unexpected blues. Um, and I titled it that because my idea for the blog, because at the time when I started it, I really thought it needed to have a theme. You sure. know, I, I, I couldn't like just write about diabetes for the sake <laughs> yeah. of writing about diabetes. Sure. Um, So the theme behind it was I would write about things in my life that reminded me I have, I had diabetes when I wasn't thinking about it. And because blue is the color of diabetes, it started with me having a big blue house on my walk between work and home. Mm. And every time I would walk and like everything in the house was blue. If you looked in the window, the furniture was like, this was an outrageous house. The furniture was blue. They had blue bottle glasses lining every window. Wow. You're just like, it can't get more blue than that. And, right. and, it, right? and I would walk by and I don't know why, but when I looked in there, I always looked at my CGM. I saw the house and it was like, that's the color of diabetes. I better look at my CGM. And see what my blood sugar is. Interesting. So that's how it started. It quickly morphed into like, you know, a diary of my life with diabetes. And I stopped writing that in 20, 2015 with like one post in 2016. Um, because I felt I had grown out of it. I'd grown out of needing to have a public diary. Like I'd worked out a lot of those diabetes issues, right? Yeah. And so I started another blog called The Chronic Scholar and kind of left, and it was a more, I would call like a more professional blog. I'm talking about my work in grad school. I'm talking about disability studies concepts. Uh, It's more analytical than it was emotional. And, And I kind of left unexpected blues behind. Just, you know, turned my back from, I'm just like, Mm. I can't. And I think a part of it is because it was painful. Um, to have that public record and this, I mean, and there's 138 posts in there, We're like long, and they're not all long, but some of them are lengthy yeah. um, and so raw, you know, it's, it, those are f- the way that I would write that blog was a flow of consciousness. It's just like, this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling about it. And So now being how many years away, five years away from when I stopped writing that, 
I felt I'd had enough distance to go back and look at what I'd written and understand how diabetes identity was happening in myself after I'd looked at diabetes identity externally in other people. Yeah. And then I want to share one more thing. Um, And the whole, the whole, like, because I did take a focus um, when I was looking at my blog posts. Um, In diabetes communities, specifically in type 1 communities, there is this stigma management strategy called defensive othering. Mm -hmm. And in practice, it looks like a person with type 1 telling an outsider, uh, you know, I have type one, not type two. I'm not that's that stereotype that you think I am. I'm something else. It's right. creating distance, right. right? Yeah, it's creating distance between the stereotype, the stigma, and the person with type one. Saying like that exists, but it's not me. Right. Right. And so what that does and how it operates in society is it actually reinforces the stereotype. Right. For a number of reasons, like one main reason, the person who you're enforcing that stereotype with believes you to be an authority. Right. Like, oh, you have experience and you know. So, okay, my ideas of what type two is are real. Right. Legitimate. But that's just not you. So you're something else. And, you know, because you have, you know, you have diabetes. Um, And. When I first came across that concept, doing research on diabetes communities, it was just like earth shattering Yeah. because I've done that. I mean, I spent years and years taking that approach. And so when I started this work, this net auto netnographic work, I had a radial reading of all the blog posts and I just saw there were so many examples of how I was doing this, using this stigma management strategy. Like I was doing that. I was othering people with type two in service of my own gain. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point of this paper and, and, and what I was so taken with was the idea of defensive othering and sort of looking inward to generate a theory of why we do that, why I did that. And, and, you know, under the idea that it might apply to other people, but um, yeah, I wanted to generate a theory of why, like what is happening internally. Yeah. That leads to that stigma management strategy being used so frequently. Yeah. And you know, the way you talk through and walk through this, stigmatizing, right? It assumes uh, an inherent kind of vertical value structure between type one and type two, mm-hmm. right? Even in the context of when people are then saying, oh, well, no, I've, I have, you know, I, I have type one, not type two, even though, and there's an asterisk, even though a lot of these understandings about type two are also false and fallacious, mm-hmm. there's still an impulse to operate within that valuing structure right um yeah i think a lot of that valuing structure has to do with the difficulty of managing and living with the disease i think it's not just that people with type 1 want to step away from the stigma 
Right. They want to step into being understood and recognize that exactly. what they live with is very difficult. Yeah, and uh, that kind that approach at getting at that conversation also misses the fact that folks with type two have very complicated processes exactly. associated with living with diabetes. Right. Exactly. It looks different, but it's yeah. also very complicated. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, there are, I will say that the majority of people with type one who are most resistant to this idea, um, that defensive othering that's harmful are the people who don't have folks with type two in their lives. Mm. Right. Like they, they don't see that there's a huge challenge with having diabetes and only using oral medication because you have to eat at specific times. Right. You know, like you have to follow a strict schedule. You can't have more than X number of grams. And so if we're doing the comparison game, which we shouldn't do anyway, um, I think it's, it's, it can be hard for people with type one to recognize that type two life comes with a lot of restrictions that, and, and, you know, that people with type one have freedom of and, and liberation with um, when they use insulin. Yeah. And, I, and in a yeah. lot of complicated ways, <laughs> vice versa as well. Right. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that I appreciate uh, a lot about the the book forthcoming as well is that there is a complicated web working through this conversation itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was on, on the editor end. Um, and I hope that you have a conversation with Bianca for this podcast, if you haven't already. Yeah, I have reached out to her, so it will be on its way as well. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear this. So ask her about this, too. We had such an interesting time as editors prompting some of our authors to push further in their thinking. Yeah. And at some points, it was painful. Um Using a disability studies lens, especially when you're not very familiar with it, can be very difficult. You know, one of the things that I find really valuable about certain intersections in disability work is um, especially true within what some deem CRIP theory and CRIP-oriented disability work. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are some deeply rooted feminist concepts um, related to the ways that, you know, if we are going to understand these social and cultural processes and systems, we also have to understand that the system is in us and we are in the system. And that means that we need to break down that within us as well as outside of us. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not easy. And oftentimes it's it's actually painful. It is. Yeah, it's pain. It's so painful. And I'll tell you what, I'm teaching, um, you know, introduction to disability studies at the undergraduate level right now. And I, there are some students who, who move through it with relative ease. And there are others who I can see are in pain, thinking through these ideas and, and how, how just hard emotionally it is to unlearn. Yeah. You know, because you have you have to see these things in yourself. You have to see that how the system is functioning within you. I love how you put that. 
Um, I can't take credit for it. That's Sarah Ahmed based work. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I value it so much that I bring it into like everything. Yeah. And, and it's, it's such a valuable framework for, for looking at all of this and, and just looking at how we're growing and how we're unlearning and how, um, and yeah. And, and so I guess all of this is to say our authors weren't in the same place coming into this. Yeah. Yeah. And so even, and maybe this is bold to say, but I think even the editing process was an intervention in and of itself because we pushed the scholars who are working in this area, you know, to make a critique of um, the overcoming narrative, which they were holding up in their chapter. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, and speaking as an author that participated in this editing process, um, you know, there are some ways that I was unconsciously including some of that uh, process that you've been talking through in the language there, right? And so as I then was uh, receiving responses from you and rewriting into that, it... For me, and I think hopefully this is the case with some of the other authors too, and that it's not also something that's exclusive to this project, because I think the editing process can also not only, it shouldn't just be framed around editing the words, right? It should be focused on editing our frameworks for understanding and therefore how that's represented in the writing. Right. And that certainly was the case for me. Um, you know, I've been writing in relation to stigma for years. Uh Right. But I know that I, I also received some suggestions about other people who have written about stigma and Mm -hmm. it was very, very useful. Right. There are just different conversations being had about these same conversations, the same things in different spaces. And it's very valuable. So, yeah. Um, yeah, So uh, I very much appreciate you coming on and talking through a lot of these conversations related to identity, um, but also personal experience and how that plays into it. Because I think um, it's hard sometimes as, and, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit as well. It's hard bringing your very kind of, deeply personal self into professional work, (laughs) right? Balancing the complexities of that can be really difficult. And I know that you do that in your work, right? Thank you. Um, I certainly try to do that. And, you know, when you start grad school, not sure if you had this experience, but one of the like pieces of sage advice that I got was find an author who you admire and then emulate what they do, right? Um, and so for me, that author was Eli Clare in Disability Studies. And the way that he writes in personal narrative just moved me, you know? Yeah. And so, right, and I, I read Eli Clare right in the beginning of grad school. And so I knew, like, this is what I wanted to do. And also I felt, you know, it's pretty close to where I'm comfortable anyway. Right. And I felt in, I've always felt in grad school, like I'm pushed to remove myself to, (laughs) 
and I believe this is a tool of the empire. So I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the whole like passive voice is such a tool of the empire. Yeah. Um, and so I've been really resistant to that. And so I swing pretty heavily in the other direction, but I find that, um, I really enjoy modeling the process of, of growth and interchange by sort of dialoguing it. Yeah. It's the most challenging piece. So in my work, it was so, so important to me that I didn't just open up my wounds and show them. Yeah. But, but that I offered something generative. And so the generative piece of this work is this concept of radical trust. And it, you know, I'm not sure how well I described in the chapter, but I can say now, you know, it operates at three levels, like um, two of those are within the community. So at the individual level, um, at the community level, but then also outside to outsiders in the public level. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that that generative concept does sort of function as a call to action. Um, I can't say that I've done all the work and that I, you know, am there. Right. You know, because I want to be honest and I want to have humility in this work. And I'm not, I haven't like figured out how the community can band together and rid ourselves of how we reproduce stereotype and stigma. But I hope, it's my hope that this is an idea that can spread and be used at the individual, at the community and in the public, in public discourse. Yeah. And I think, uh, it's hard for me, uh, speaking kind of professionally and personally as well. It's hard to conceptualize what that would even look like, right? Because we operate in this framework. This is the world we live in Yeah, and imagining another is difficult in the first place. And then taking the steps necessary to get there is equally, if not more difficult than that as, as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but one thing I can say is that engaging the way that we're talking through here is a step in the right direction. Right. Sure. Yeah. So uh, we may not be there, but <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what there means. I, me either. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't either. Yeah. I really don't. Right. So uh, as long as we're trying to get whatever there is, the, then uh, that's a step in the right direction anyway. Right. Yeah. I find so. myself finding these like micro opportunities to push. I mean, that's like, for me, that's the spice of life is finding these little opportunities to push people's thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and radical trust is like a huge leap for people. People hate it. <laughs> Seriously, people hate it. And the reason they hate it is because they're so attached to the idea that the diabetic person is choosing the life that they have. And that if right. only they would make different choices. And, 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 and we do that. We have that perspective as a society because we want to believe in willpower not determinism, right? Like we want to believe that we can, we are the agents of our own life. And so people are really resistant to the idea of radical trust, which essentially, I mean, it's so basic, right? It's so simple. Like everyone that you know is doing the best they possibly can 
with the resources and the energy that they have available to them. And if they had more, they'd be doing more. End of story, right? But it, oh man, I can't even tell you how much pushback I get about this. I mean, People, I, I believe yeah. it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it's amazing. I mean, even for myself. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I won't even get into conversations about my myself and issues related to trust writ large, right? Let alone <laughs> the way that that plays into some of these structures and stereotypes and stigmas and things that, frankly, we don't even see a lot of the time. Yeah. We just operate off of these norms, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's why it's radical and that's why it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Heather, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking through some of this. And I very much am looking forward to the forthcoming book. Um, and until then, we've got a lot to work from because uh, you've been publishing like crazy the last couple of years. <laughs> so <laughs> there's there's a lot of great, great work to work through ourselves. So, yeah. um, thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to, uh, talk about how, uh, diabetes is baked into identity. Oh, I <laughs> I'm love not a dad, but I got some dad jokes. I am <laughs> going to take that out as a soundbite and we are going to reproduce <laughs> that sucker. <laughs> I've been waiting the whole show. Oh, so you've had that in your back pocket the whole time. That's fantastic. (laughs) So silly. (sighs) Dr. Heather R. Walker is a social scientist at the University of Utah Health and an instructor in the School of Cultural and Social Transformation there as well. Um, The forthcoming book, which she co-edits, is titled Undoing Diabetes, Representation, Disability, Culture. Heather, once again, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Hey, welcome back. Uh, Melissa and I are now sitting here having digested a little (laughs) bit of that bread and a little bit of that conversation. There's a lot going on there that uh, she's talking through, especially when uh, around these conversations about the unconscious and sometimes conscious ways that very earnest efforts of educating and building understanding with ourselves and others plays off of and is part of these larger systems that are stereotyping and othering and othering in mm-hmm. ways that are really kind of frankly hard to see as yeah. we're in the middle of it. Uh Wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> I wasn't in the interview when you were um, talking directly to Heather. Right. Um, so listening to this, I'm trying to like process how I felt when I listened to it, because as a type one diabetic, you know, we kind of late, she talked about labeling ourselves as like the types. And I've really done that my whole life without really thinking deeper about it. And so this is why uh, why we're here right to talk about these things that you know someone who is has lived with this my entire life has not thought about in the same ways and that's why we talk to each other about these things and learn these things and I think that's so important so I'm excited to talk about this and have people hear this and you know we welcome people to (laughs) comment and 
talk to us about their feelings and their experiences with these things as well, because I think we were talking about this earlier where um, learning from other people can really alter the way we see the world. And that's and that's so important when we are talking about radical trust, this kind of term that Heather yeah. uses um, <laughs> was just eye opening to me. So, yeah, no, certainly <laughs> so. And, you know, there's uh, there are a number of different frameworks that people use to try and get a similar kinds of conversations or, or certain ways of understanding how we need to try and reframe our own ways of thinking and seeing and understanding the world and other people in order to rebuild better worlds right <laughs> around us and ways of understanding people and experiences. And one of the things that as you were talking through this, that this kind of triggered for me is the ways that empathy and, and mm -hmm. justice frameworks around empathy and care, a logic right. of care, um, in feminist and black feminist uh, scholarship and activism are oriented towards similar kinds of processes. Sure. Right. Though the, the, the willingness, like she talks about here a little bit, and also in some of the ways that she's written this too, um, the willingness to, you know, understand and give people the benefit of the doubt uh, especially in like, as she's talking about with the context of diabetes, because people are doing the best they can in the circumstances in which they find themselves. Right. Like with a period at the end of the sentence, mm -hmm. full stop. People are, you know, in the context of this conversation, we don't have time to get into all of the kind of theoretical and nitty gritty stuff there. But one of the things that she unpacks elsewhere is that in the chapter we're talking about here is the way that radical trust is all about conceptualizing that in ways that place that kind of nexus of change in the systems, because the systems are where access to the resources to actually do all of these things around treatment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're talking about shots, we're talking about eating, we're talking about all of these various locations right. that are so hyper stigmatized right access to food access to technology access to insulin access to doctors and treatment and you know no none of us can understand what someone else's experience is that's true in everything right and so when you take it separately into these okay one type one diabetic does not experience what the other diabetic experiences, you know, someone who has this autoimmune disorder, you know, we relate in these certain ways, but we all experience things in our own way. Right. And, and all of the other contexts of our lives play right. into that and how we can and cannot do everything, you know? And so, and that's why, you know, as she writes about the very notion of, trust and i would add then empathy and care-based ethics really in general for diabetics is not possible among the large-scale kind of american identity constructions around diabetes and so any basis of trust 
like she's talking about here is inherently radical because it already is breaking from those norms and molds that don't provide space for it. Right. Expectations, you know, you don't look like someone with diabetes. You don't act like someone with diabetes. Oh, you take care of yourself. You don't take care of yourself. You are doing well. You're not doing well. The bad good that we label everything, you know, we label everything black and white, like, oh, you're, (laughs) you're doing this well, you're not doing this well, you're losing weight, you're gaining weight, you're, you know, and how those labels and perceptions of humans are so toxic. Yeah, certainly. And it then is no wonder why the kinds of defensiveness Mm -hmm. that are kind of subconscious And in the background that she's talking about unpacking as she's seeing this in herself and her social media posts, which, you know, in different kinds of contexts, I have also seen in myself as well in these past, like recorded memories and writings and things that I've done in the past. Um, Looking at those and unpacking the way that you were playing into and or basing your understanding of yourself and others on these really problematic worldviews mm-hmm. um, produces that like defensiveness. Right. And so it's through that defensiveness that there's the, the default othering of them because they, yeah, I might not fit the mold. Okay. But that like then reaffirms that supposedly the stereotype is real. Right. Right. Yeah. That I really, that part of what Heather was talking about really struck me. Because I've had sort of similar, I've of course had similar experiences and, right. you know, had <laughs> had similar, like you were talking about uh, defensiveness and kind of trying to educate people and, you know, within your own understanding. So <laughs> we're all on a journey of understanding. And so providing grace for everybody, right, that we're trying to be our best selves and i wish that were across the board (laughs) that would be nice if that was universally true wouldn't it Uh. we're not all perfect obviously we all have weaknesses and shortcomings so right but you know no one no one was born understanding other people's experiences (laughs) that's not a thing and we build understanding through these processes and one of the things that she kind of touched on there that I thought (laughs) echoed a lot of this conversation too was the way that she's talking about getting away from the kind of framings and language around despite Mm, right I'm doing thus and so despite diabetes you can you can do anything despite having diabetes you know you can and I remember a lot of that talk growing up too and it's really interesting when I was diagnosed I had this nurse that I mean, I was nine years old and it's terrifying because, you know, you don't (laughs) I don't think you really grasp the concept of what's happening to you when you're young like that. You know, thinking back on when I was diagnosed, (laughs) but I had this nurse that said, you know, what do you like to do? What do you like to participate in? You know, I danced and I. Mm all the things that I, you know, I like to draw, I like all these things. And she's like, well, yeah, you can do all those things still. And that was like a beacon for me 
my entire life. Like, oh yeah, right. this, this isn't going to stand in the way of what you're doing, but that kind of does that thing of like, you can do it despite. And why do we have to have that conversation? Right. Because the world is telling us, oh, you're going to live this hard life. You're going to have all these things. And yeah, it is, it is hard and it is, it sucks. It's really, yeah. really shitty. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's just be frank. But a lot of those conversations of despite, you know, you can do this despite your weight. You can do this despite your bad control, your good control, whatever it is you're despiting. I, that was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the very linguistic framing of that implies a, a, a linguistic coding of, ne of the negative. Mm -hmm. Right. And that kind of cultural frame uh, language is culture and we frame it that way linguistically because that's the the assumption the cultural assumption mm -hmm. so in talking about trust um and kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt what really struck me in the interview with heather was her diagnosis story and i think for diabetics diagnosis stories always hold <laughs> a certain memory because yeah. it's it's a traumatic event honestly and her talking about how she was misdiagnosed because they you know were her doctor was saying she had an eating disorder you know she was at that age where maybe that was common maybe this doctor saw that a lot and so there was this distrust in you know she's telling them no I'm eating I'm eating I'm <laughs> drinking all this juice I'm doing all these things like no I I am being totally forthcoming here, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and when I was young, I had, I mean, I was newly diagnosed. I think this may have been my first initial doctor mm. that I had. Um, and so you're new to this and you don't really <laughs> know what you're doing, right? It's new. I'm nine years old and we go to this doctor and my parents are with me. And this is back in, you know, 1996. Right. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't have fancy computers and technology that you download your thing and then your doctor just sees all your numbers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had these little notebooks that you write down what your blood sugars are and, you know, how much insulin you give yourself. And so you're like daily recording these things. Right. And I know a lot of people still do this yeah. and keep really like interesting notes and things like this, but I was always terrible at this. I was always bad at it. And I was, there's this sense of shame when you have a high blood sugar, like that is ingrained in, I think the good and bad, like we were talking about, you know, and feeling like, <laughs> you know, I don't want my doctor to see this you know, I was 300. Oh my gosh. Or right. I'm this number labels mm -hmm. you and you like put this label on yourself. And so when I would go to these doctor's appointments with my parents, there with me. Right. And I have this weird, distinct memory of, I think many people with diabetes could relate to this when you stick your like used test strips in the little pocket there, <laughs> like when you don't have a garbage and then it like fills up and it's really gross. Cause you're just like, wow, there's a bunch of strips in here. I think <laughs> a lot of people do anyway. So I remember him opening my blood tester and the pocket had been unzipped and like all these test strips were just oh, in no. there and he just like did this thing. It was so judgy. I just, 
it's weird. I was nine years old and I still to this day can like feel what it felt like in that room Mm. to have him kind of huff over to the garbage and like dump it out in disgust and then come back and like, I don't even know if I've ever told you this, Steve. I Um, haven't heard this, no. uh, So then he comes back and like starts looking at my numbers and, you know, starts questioning me about them and questioning about these you know, you must be sneaking food because why else would you be high here? Or, you know, you're lying about these numbers. These don't match your A1C. Like you must be writing down lower numbers. And sometimes I did do that because Mm. I was afraid of him. Yeah. And I was afraid of what he clearly, because I'm in this room and he's like drill sergeant, like these numbers. And, you know, maybe it came from a place of like trying to be helpful, but it terrified me. Right. And, you know, I'm glad that my parents realized this and they were probably like, what the crap, you know, um, and got me a different doctor. I mean, I had him, I don't, I'd have to ask them. I had this doctor for, you know, not super long, but this was a very defining crippling thing for me yeah that still to this day like I think I've sort of diminished that over time in having really good doctors who didn't guilt me and didn't do that sort of mistrust that we're talking about Mm -hmm. you know because they had that empathy and they know that it is difficult and you're going to have high blood sugars yeah you're gonna have a high blood sugar if you eat something and don't give yourself insulin like we all do that sometimes and we all have a random high blood sugar that we don't expect and you know that's kind of usual with with diabetes and you know that sort of policing of diabetes care and yeah well and I think it also highlights a lot of the ways that these kinds of conversations that uh, you know Heather and I were talking through about the ways that we're understanding ourselves and understanding other people and these, how that relates to the large scale kind of social Mm -hmm. construction of what diabetes is in quotes, right? That when those kinds of things are operating as the norm and the standard, they do actually function in the space of medical care and medical treatment and when that is present like that it can be really damaging Mm -hmm. especially to someone so young and so new to this thing that is already terrifying to you know terrify them and like I don't know what the goal was to like terrify me into taking better care of myself (laughs) um that doesn't seem like it would ever be effective even in an adult right like yeah but in a child who's so like young and being formed into who the person they are, you know, that crippled me for a long time, (laughs) not wanting anyone to know, like if I wasn't, you know, having these great blood sugars and that people actually cared about that. Right. And so we've had so many really good discussions here that I think kind of all wrap into this radical trust that Heather was talking about. Um, And you know, how that encompasses so much of life in general, um, this sort of trust and empathy that you were talking about working together to have that radical trust of people around us and of ourselves, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's uh, that's what's so key here, right? Because we are and we were talking about identity. We're right. talking about the way that we understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. And identity is always connected to how identities are constructed. Like right, in and society how people identify us and how yeah. we identify All others. All the various boxes. And how much impact we can have in this one moment, right? That <laughs> I was talking about that doctor earlier who probably has no memory of me, right? Like, right. Of how many thousands of hundreds of thousands of patients he saw, right, in his career. But to think about how much impact that had on my life and right. to, you know, broaden that out to all of our existences and, you know, treating people in a way that is more loving and caring, I think is hopefully what everybody would like to see in the world. Yeah. And it certainly is geared toward why we're doing this and why we're here talking about it right now. Right. right? So <laughs> thanks yeah. for being with us and working through some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So that wraps up episode two. And a big thank you again to Dr. Heather R. Walker. The conversation was excellent and the bread was also delicious. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for the rec. Yes. And uh, next week we will be talking everything bagel pumpkin loaves. Yeah. Yes. We're excited to make those. (laughs) It's a mouthful. And also... (laughs) A primer on diabetes and its treatments. Everything about it. <laughs> and so all the things we're talking about that you're like, okay, what is that? What is let me Google this? <laughs> <laughs> what what are all these acronyms? What are these things? <laughs> so we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna go into depth and give you an idea of what all these things are, how it functions. So uh, if you haven't yet, go ahead and follow or subscribe wherever you get our podcasts here and write us a review if uh, there's anything that you really connected with and also any of, of these conversations that you feel like we could expand on in future episodes. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks so much and we'll see you next week. Bye.